you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you, or to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. If you would pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, please prepare our hearts for this message today so that we understand how important it is that we find all our happiness in you. Not just look at you as a provider of things, that we're happy when you give us exactly what we want, but that we're happy that we're with you, that we are reconciled back to you, that we may one day be in heaven with you. Please use Matt as the vessel to impart this message to us today and we may feel all that it, all that it really is. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 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 Um, what should I gain from... Um, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. I just, uh, you know, those words just, uh, I guess, hit me. Um, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, and, and Brian just read verses 21, 22, and 23. Um, as I start at, as I set out to, um, to work through Colossians with you guys, um, I was thinking we'd get through it in a couple, you know, maybe three months or so. And, and uh, today, um, <laughs> we're, we're supposed to preach on three verses, and we're only going to get through two. I was going to tell you from the very beginning. Uh, he read all three, because actually this is a part one of, of, of a two message. Um, we'll do part two next week. Um, and Brian, uh, but, but I want you to see it as a package. I want you to see all three verses kind of as a package. Um, of course, that's within the light of the bigger package that we have in Colossians and, and this hymn and such. But this is really what we see here is Paul's response to this great hymn that we just talked about last week. Um, it's, it's, it's Paul's, how, how do we respond to the magnificence of Christ that, that he, he just talked about? Um, so this week is going to be part one, uh, and really it's going to be verses 21 and 22, and the next week we're going to get to 23, and kind of the reason, and I do want to get through Colossians before Jesus returns, uh, of course that date, which we do not know, but um, at least uh, before I die, I want to get through Colossians, um, uh, and so, uh, we're not going to do that doing two or three verses at a time, so what was funny is Rusty is going to be uh, preaching in a couple weeks. And he said, that's okay, guys. I'm going to preach a whole chapter. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll spend two or three verses a week on it when I, and then when Russ fills in, we'll get through a whole chapter. And so we'll be done in a, in a month and a half. So uh, on that note, uh, uh, let me say, uh, some of you guys know some of the story behind the chairs. And 
I was going to say that during the announcements, but I kind of wanted to save it for right now. God, God really blessed us tremendously. Um, we, we've been kind of wanting to get chairs. That's kind of our, as we've begun renovation, um, we kind of had some certain things that basically priority list of what we needed, what we felt God was leading us to purchase and buy. And, and we just kind of purchased it as we got the money for it. Um, and uh, so from lights to speakers to staging and all that stuff. And so one thing I've found just in the past couple years particularly is that um, Matthew does not make a move until it's evident God wants me to make a move. Um, and and I, just, I just don't worry about that so much. Like I used to worry, like, am I doing it at the right time? Am I, am I doing it right? And, and it's, it's just, and I've just come to find out that God, if I just seek his face, he just, he just tells me when to take that next step. Like, and I don't worry about that. I'm not saying this is, I do this perfectly. But I'm say one thing I've found in two years at Renovation is that God just says, you take the next step, and I, and I take the next step, and, and we take the next step, and the elders take the next step, and, and then God just blesses. Like, it just, it just works that way. I know it sounds oversimplified, but it just works that way. And, and so we've been wanting to get chairs, and so we've, we've been um, saving up money as a church and uh, putting back aside some money and, and, uh, and kind of waiting. And what I was really waiting on was uh, the idea of asking each of you guys to purchase a chair for yourself, and then a chair for a visitor. Uh, and that would bring us up to the amount we needed to buy 125 chairs to fill this whole area. Um, to give you an idea, 125 chairs of these is about $5,000. That's a lot of money. Um, and so I just, just did not feel released by God to, to lead our church to take that next step, to do that. And as of a couple weeks ago, we had $2,500 set aside to bu- purchase new chairs. I was kind of waiting because to have you guys purchase a chair, two chairs each, would, would bring us up to like two grand. And, and so they give us like 4500 We just have to come up with another $500. And, and God just didn't say, go for it yet. Like it, I talked to different people, and he just didn't say, go for it. So I, I just, we just waited. We just waited. And, I, and then I'm sitting in a driveway, getting ready to give a bid on a rental house cleaning. And I get an email, thank God for iPhone emails, and I get an email that says, there's a church that wants to sell 159 padded chairs. I'm going, oh, well, 159 will do. I don't know where we're going to put them, but uh, I just wanted 125 gone. So, uh, and the email read, I don't, I don't want to use all my sermon time for this, but it's just such a valuable story, I think, for us to see God's provision. Um, 159 chairs, and the email says, eight bucks a chair or five bucks if you, per chair if you buy them all. I'm going, at this point, I'm going, okay, well, these could be like padded chairs where, you know, it's like an inch of padding, but they're like 25 years old, so it's really just like a, an eighth inch of padding. And I'm going, five bucks a chair, that, that's a really good deal. And if they're anything like this, I'm going, oh, my gosh. And so um, to give you an idea, when we were planting Connection, we traveled from Bardstown, Kentucky to Columbus to purchase 100 of those metal chairs, the, actually the exact metal chairs we've been using, for five bucks a piece, and then travel all the way back to Kentucky with those chairs for five bucks a piece. And they get this email, long story short, I get this email, it's a church, uh, First Baptist Church of Huber Heights, and they're selling 159 chairs, and so I'm like, I, I'm gonna jump right, I got two emails from kind of two similar people, but, and they're like, dude, you've been asking for chairs, you better jump on this. So I, I mean, I, I was going to anyway, so I jump on my phone, and I call them, and we're kind of talking, she's like, yeah, we've got like 44 of these 
you know, the, the, the worship chairs, and then we got like 76 of these other chairs, and then a, and then a few other assorted padded chairs. And, and so long story short, I called, and we went and saw all these chairs, and, and um, basically just continued to talk. And long story short, we ended up with 160 chairs for um, 600 bucks, which is $3.72 a chair. I mean, this is cheaper than the metal chairs that we've been sitting in. $3.72 for $35 chairs. And hey, God, yeah, hey, yay, God. God. Um, and then we just had to look like the Beverly Hillbillies hauling them back. So, uh, which is awesome. You know, my scraped up truck with this trailer bed, thanks, Matt was able to to get us a, like a six by or seven by 16 and we stacked them all real high with lots of ratchet straps and uh, I think maybe we'll throw the pictures up on Facebook or something this week and you can see it. It's, it yes, it was a big monstrosity moving down the highway. So um, this is just 60 of them or 50 of them I think and we have, like I said, the ones on the ends, we have 44 of those, we have 76 of we call them wavy backs or whatever. And then we have some other assorted uh, padded chairs that are in. And most of them are in storage at Maple Heights Baptist Church. Uh, we, they have a room there that they've given us to use for storage. So um, huge, huge deal. So God's provision is good. And, and if that's what, if the moral of the story, like just wait on God, okay? Like don't wait, you know, like don't be lazy, right? Because like I'm chomping at the bit. Like I'm going, all right, God, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? I, you know, you're, you're providing the money. You're providing the money. When are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? And he just never says, like, wait. So I'm like, he's like holding me back. Like, you know, the dude getting ready to fight, and you got the other guy, hold me back, hold me back. Yeah, like that's what's going on. And, and he held me back and held us back, and, and then he just blessed our socks off with more than we could have asked for. So, um, so yes, that means in that account that we had $2,500 set aside for, we have $1,900 left that we were going to use for chairs. Um, so I don't, I don't know, I don't have any plans for that necessarily yet, so we'll see what God's got in store. So, whoo, Colossians, let's get into Colossians. So what happens, we jump right in here, Paul has just painted this beautiful picture of Christ, describing him as basically the, the fullness of God, the creator of the universe, that in him, to him, and through him all things flow. This is the hymn that some say Paul either changed or the hymn that he maybe even wrote himself or the poem that he wrote himself. And my son is like uh, flipping out, right? Um, That's right. We're going to press through it. This reminds me of um, my, my, my buddy Mitch, Pastor Soul Country Church. And they had, it's actually the country church from which John Piper's successor is coming, well, had pastored. And this little country church of like 20 people, 25 people, and there's like four or five of them as babies. Um, they didn't have a nursery, all right? So the nurse, the kids are like right in here. And I just, you know, he's, he's like, my, I'm like, how do you do that? He's like, well, my people are fine. I, I said, they're used to it. And I said, no, how do you do that? Because I get so distracted, like it's worse for me. So just stick with me. I'll try and stay focused if you can help me stay focused, okay? So, um, so he, Paul just gets done describing this about Christ. And then kind of what happens in the title of the sermon today is, And You, But You. Like, 
He, he's, this is Christ. This is the beauty of Christ. And this is, this is this magnificent description of Christ. And then he says, and you. And so what happens now is Paul turns to us. And basically what's going to happen is the text is going to get a little mean for just a few moments. Of course, we're going to be in it for more than just a few moments. But then it, the picture begins to brighten, I believe, in the second verse. And I want to say this at the outset. I think sometimes we struggle to see the greatness of God and the greatness of his acts because we're, we're clouded by our perceived goodness. And, and you see this as a constant theme in Paul's writings where he, he's continually reminding us of, of what we were. I mean, it's a common theme. What you were, what I was. And then he goes on and describes Christ or describes Christ at least in that context. And, and I believe our pride serves often to blind us from God's goodness, from God's greatness. I mean, pride honestly blinds us from lots of things. Blinds us from correction, from rebuke. It blinds us from just the magnificent of who God is. And when we see ourselves as we really are, and, and, and definitely as we were, then we will see God as he magnificently is. So I think what happens is Paul paints this picture of our past serving as a backdrop to God's wonderful work on the cross and his wonderful work in the Colossians' life. So I want you to see last couple weeks, working through this hymn is kind of the backdrop. Um, or I'm sorry, what, we're getting ready to the first, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. The first verse that he just read, that we're going to read, is kind of serves as the backdrop of, of, of which we see, if we see basically the sin and see who we were, then we then begin to see the greatness of, of God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So we'll make sure we're tracking. So basically, one last kind of summary statement here before we jump in is that the overall theme I think we see here kind of in the verses that we've already worked through and including today is this idea of a transition from darkness to light. So if, if as Paul is talking to the Colossians, he wants them to understand the significance of that which they've come to believe. And he wants them to, to, to see this. And so what he's doing is he's showing them the transition from darkness to light. And this is something, you know, as I was working through this, I'm like, man, God, I've, I've preached on lots of these different things. But, and then he just reminded, this is this morning I was studying and, and he says, look, man, we can, he didn't say look, man, but it was like, almost like that. He said, we we can never be reminded too much of what we were and what we are now and the transition from darkness to light. Like, we should be reminded of that daily. Um, and uh, so, with that said, I, I believe this is shown basically by the extensive description of you and of the word now. So, you see in these two verses at verse 21, it says, and you, and then he describes it. And then in verse 22, he says, and he has now, and then he describes what has happened now. Let's read this transition from darkness to light. So, uh, one last thing. The word now, it's interesting because in, in Greek, you don't, typically word placement's not incredibly important. It's all by the, the endings of the different words. But I, I believe what we see here in this passage, we see the word now is placed in front of the verb. 
in verse 22, in order to distinguish the new situation of the converts from their former state. So I think it's putting emphasis on this is what you were and this is what you are now instead of, hey, you know, guys, this is what you were and, and this is what you are now. But there's an emphasis of Paul going, look, 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 here's Jesus. He's awesome. He's the creator of the entire universe. This is what you were. This is what you are now. And with that, let's start in verse 21 again. It says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, first of all, we're basically we're going to break this into three sections. First section is your past. Then we're going to talk about your present or our present. And then we're going to talk about our future. But first, as we talk about our past, basically what I want to see is what is Paul saying about our past? What we were. And then we're going to talk about two implications based upon that truth of what we were. So first of all, this is just what is Paul simply saying as he's talking to the Colossians, what is he saying that we were? And the first of all, we were alienated from God and chasing our desires. Alienated from us. So verse 21, and you who once were alienated. Now, there's, many, there's a number of things that can be said about alienated, but at its heart, it's basically, it means estrangement. We only see this word, it's interesting, the word for alienated, we only see that used in Ephesians 2, verse 12, Ephesians 4, verse 18, and in this place as well. And basically meaning a, a spatial separation from God. And then we also understand from the context That it's implied that the totality of all things have become alienated from Christ. It's not just us, but all of creation. Alienated from Christ, or alienated from God. And then he says, you also were once alienated from the one whom you depend on for your existence. This is Christ, the creator, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And from him, you are alienated. Your existence depends on the one from whom which you are estranged or separated from. And Paul is saying to the Colossians in a very real way. I mean, these are new believers and he's looking at them saying, this is what you were. For some of us, it's a distant past and we begin to forget what we were rescued from some of us saved at a very young age, and what have I saved from? And, but to the Colossians, Paul's saying, this is, this is what you were like a year ago. You 35-year-old, this is what you were a year ago. And for us, it's the same thing. This is what you were. You were alienated from God. And, uh, you know, it's, it's for me who saved it at four Right around there, you know, it's, it's challenging to think of that and think of what, well, how, how was I before then? Like, 
and, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we begin to then, for those of us who may be saved at that kind of age, we, we kind of start going, we start looking for something. Well, you know, I drank too much juice. Like, I was a devil, you know? Or I, I opened up my Christmas presents when I wasn't supposed to. Like, I was a devil. Like, that's what I was. And then, and then we try to grab that and try to feel guilty about it, you know? And, and I don't think that's Paul's point here. But, and we're going to get to this a little bit later, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But, but first, we just have to understand, even, like, and, and this has kind of helped me having a son, seeing him and his age, and seeing as he grows, that he is alienated from God. Like, separated from God. And it's our soul, our responsibility, my wife and I too, to lead him to God. Uh, but it's, it's easy, the picture of alienation is clearer in that representation. He says, you also, you were alienated from God, from the one you depend, your, exist, your, de, your existence depends on. The only thing that you find your meaning and purpose from like, I mean, there's no deeper alienation than this that we see. Like, being estranged from mom and dad and being separated from them, like, that is nothing compared to being alienated from God. What's interesting is that when we're alienated from God, it results often in broken relationships everywhere. With God, obviously with family, with ourselves. The other thing that the Bible teaches us is that everything that, was, that is created was not created so that our enjoyment of creation would, so that our enjoyment would terminate on creation. So let me, let me restate that again. Everything that is created was not created so that our enjoyment would terminate or end on creation. Like creation was created in order to point us back to God, right? Everything stands to point and lead us back to the cross and, uh, and back to God. And so what happens is when we are alienated from God, we're beings created to seek fulfillment, to seek satisfaction. And so what happens is when we're separated from the only thing that, can, that we can find satisfaction, we can find fulfillment and purpose, and we try to find that in creation. We try to find what makes us feel good in creation. We try to find joy in creation. The Bible also teaches us that at our hearts that we prefer creation to the creator. We prefer this that is nothing compared to him. And we end up chasing things that do not satisfy us, that have never satisfied us and will never satisfy us. You know, stupidity is this. I have this, and it doesn't work to satisfy me, so more of this might work to satisfy me, right? And that's where we find ourselves toiling. As, one, as, uh, as Matt Chandler would say, in the cul-de-sac of stupidity, just making a left-hand turn constantly, like NASCAR. Like we want more of what does not satisfy and the bulk of humanity is here. And he's saying, this is what you were, Colossians. This is what you were. And the same thing is true for us. This is what we were. So, that's Paul. what Paul's saying. Now, let's talk about a couple implications of this text. First of all, implication number one. This is to you, 
to me. Don't chase creation as if you were alienated. This is a trap that we fall into constantly, maybe even daily. Chasing creation as if we were alienated. So what happens is we're, we're, we're held in God's hand, right? And, and nothing can pluck us out and, and our salvation is secured. But then what happens is, is we start to kind of look to the side, right? And we look to this side and look below us and start looking around to find satisfaction. You know, some things, some places I think we try to find satisfaction is, for those of us who are in school, try to find satisfaction in our school and our grades. So if I'm not doing well in school, like everybody else knows it because you're not satisfied, like that's not good. Your satisfaction is being found in your schoolwork. It's the same thing with money. Like some of us, when money is not going well, everyone else around us knows it. Because you're trying to find satisfaction in money and you continue trying to find that satisfaction, trying to find that satisfaction and, and you cannot find it. You cannot feel it. It always leaves you empty. I mean, name it. I mean, think about it. Just over these next few moments, think about it. what is it that you try to find satisfaction in as if, as if God is not, as if he's a stranger to you. Um. Buying things, that's something that fulfills you, find joy in. Maybe getting to the next stage in life. And I know myself, this is probably one of the things that I struggle with the most going through seminary. And, and it's probably one of, one of my biggest regrets. Is that going through seminary, I saw seminary as just a stepping stone to be doing what I'm doing right now. And oh, what I would give to go back and redo it. Like, I would just, I, you know, there's so many times I'm sitting down and study God's word and I'm going, I should know this. Why do I have to spend three hours looking it up? If I'd have just paid more attention. If I wouldn't have been so focused on getting to the next step. And getting to the next step. And then I get to the next step and I'm going, I don't find fulfillment in this. It's only in God. And if I'd have just found fulfillment in God then and just rested there, then I wouldn't have some of these issues I have now that I'm going, man, why not? Why didn't I, didn't I, why didn't I do that? Where are we trying to find, where do you try to find satisfaction as if, as if you're alienated from God? You know, we're alienated from God because instead of running to him, we just want his stuff. Whatever that is, it may be material, it may be immaterial. It, we want his stuff, and we think that his stuff will somehow fulfill us. So now Paul is talking about how the Colossians, you know, were completely alienated from God. They were lost in their sin. So obviously this is, this is an implication. Some, this, this is not directly what Paul's talking about, but it's something for us to think about. Because we can do this to a certain extent. Like, not to complete alienation, we may talk a little bit about that next week, but like it's, it's almost a practical alienation where we are so focused on the peripheral that we really can't see the God that's in front of us. Practically alienated. But the fact is this. 
It's a food, marriage, wine, our children, good grades, the future should create worship in us. Like when we look at our, when we look at what the future holds, like if we're just anxious to get to that next step, let that drive us to worship the God in the place that we stand right now. Money, grades, whatever it is. Don't seek satisfaction there. Let these things, let the creation do what it was meant to do. It wasn't meant to fulfill you. It was meant to lead you to him. Let it point you to him. Second implication. Learn to see unbelievers as alienated from God. Oftentimes, when we see or when we look at unbelievers, it appears, track with me, when we look at those unbelievers that are around us, it appears to us often that they are at home in this world, that they are secure, that they are comfortable with themselves, and maybe even that they're happy. Like you may get that little glimpse, you know, where you kind of look from your spiritual high seat and you go, well, I can just tell that they're not happy, you know. But most of the time when we look around, we, we, they appear to be happy. They're, well, they've got a good life. They've got a house. They've got a marriage. They've got, they've got all these things. And, and, but the reality is, is that they're, what they're experiencing is a false hope. You're experiencing a false, false hope. They experience comfort that in the end leads them down the path of destruction. And my, what would happen if we saw them as alienated from God? Best example I could come up with is this, and some of you are gonna laugh, but as you know, I like to hunt. And one thing that we were doing down at our hunting property, or not our hunting property, but the place where I hunt at, is putting in food plots, right? If you don't know what a food plot is, I'll spare you some of the details. But what we do is basically his woods, it's 360 acres, and it's just nothing but woods, like wooded area. Now, if you've ever been in the woods, not much grass grows in the woods. So the, pretty much the only thing for deer to eat in the woods is like acorns, which happens to be one of their favorites, but there's only so much of that. Grass keeps growing back. There's, once the acorns are gone for the year, they're gone. So what hunters will do is they will create a what's called a food plot. So what we've done over the past couple of years, we've torn down trees, like cut down trees, picked up, last time I was down there, I just did nothing but pick up rocks all day. You want to talk about something boring? Uh, that was boring and uh, not much fun, but it, at least it was not using this. <laughs> so it was good. So what happens, we, we till the dirt, like we're, it felt like Adam, you know, like Adam in the garden, like work in the dirt, work in the dirt, you know, you know and, and so we plant, what happens is you plant different grass or clover or different things that deer happen to like. And so what happens, these deer then are walking through the woods and as they're walking through the woods, all of a sudden, oh wow, there's a big patch of green grass. That looks really good to eat. Don't know how it got here. It just happened to appear in the middle of the woods. But this looks like it might fulfill me. This looks like it might be good. And, and in some senses, it is tasteful. It is fulfilling, right? I tell you, just a terrible example. But like seriously, the people around us are walking through the woods, all right? They're walking, all right, come on, come on, track with me. They're walking through the woods, all right? And they see these things that 
seemingly satisfy them or temporarily satisfy them, but in the end are going to lead to their destruction. They're going to lead to their death. Like we like to talk, I don't know, this became really popular. I don't know if it's been popular for a long time. I had to check the, the, his, his, uh, the history behind it. But we seem to have this kind of popular thing right now, like get Jesus so that you can have a better life now. And I, don't, I know that's, I don't mean like, Joel Steenish, like, like, but even in, in modern church culture, like we try to do this. Well, meet Jesus so that you can have a better life now, like so that you can have joy now. You can have a better marriage now. Like, yes, that's good, but that's like sixty years of eternity. And and I know our culture is so focused on the here and now. They don't think about the future. I, I know, but but just. If we would see people as alienated from God in a position that leads to their destruction, you would think we would want to tell them about that, right? Like if your son, if your child, your daughter was on a railroad tracks and you saw a train coming, would you not tell them, go get them, remove them from the track? Would you not? Then why we see lost people headed towards destruction, and we sit back and say nothing. Why? I had a conversation with a couple individuals this past week. kind of broke my heart, but um, started off with a quote this conversation did, and I'm going to read it here. It says, it's quoting from a, a book written by a Catholic priest, and Catholic priest um, says, the church should preach not warnings of doom, but the message of salvation. Not menaces, but the joyful good news. Not a declaration of war, but words of peace. Um, To which someone responded, so beautiful and so often poorly practiced. Many people say that to preach sin and hell is loving because people need to know that in order to be saved, need to know that in order to be saved. But I say we're not supposed to be the source of that. Let the natural life tell the story of sin and let the church tell the story of mercy and grace. To which I responded, this was my first comment. I said, just remember, most deceitful things come very close to the truth and may even contain a good bit of truth all the while leading many people astray. I think that quote has some truth, but there is a lot of deceit in there as well. To which the person responded, can you elaborate please? Okay. I'll, I'll be happy to. So there can be no proclamation of the gospel without a proclamation of impending judgment. I do agree that churches tend to focus on judgment without proclaiming the hope, but to respond with no proclamation of the consequences of our sin leaves no need for the gospel. This is the reason why we find ourselves in a church culture where the preacher teaches nothing but moralism devoid of, of the gospel. To which he responds, I'm not saying there is no place for judgment, but I'd rather ask the questions that lead people to judge their own sin rather than to proclaim my judgment of them. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. Um, (laughs) The fact is, there is no gospel, there's no need for the gospel without our sin. There's no need for judgment without our sin. There's no need for mercy and propitiation without our sin. It's, it's a both and. It's not an either or. Like the gospel isn't just the good news. The gospel is that we're rescued. The good news rescues us from this. 
it's not, the gospel is not just Jesus died on the cross to save you and give you a better life now. It's you're a wretched sinner who needs saved from impending judgment and Jesus came to pay the price. That's the gospel. Why, when we look at the world and we see people alienated from Christ, that, that we just sit back and we, we're just going to just let the, let the natural, the, the natural man won't see that. The natural man sees him as good. Sin and judgment are foundational components of the gospel. Without it, there is no gospel. We need to learn to see those who are unconverted as facing the impending judgment of God. And we have the good news. Don't get trapped into seeing them only as they appear on the surface. Next thing Paul says, alienated from God. Back to, he, back to, if you will, away from the implications, back to now the text where he says, you were alienated from God. This is who you were, church at Colossae. Second thing that you were, he's verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So that hostile in mind, blaming others for our lack of satisfaction, Blaming others for our lack of satisfaction. Basically, when he says hostile in mind, what he's talking about here is that we're enemies of God in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our intentions. That basically that this alienation from God is not just some external thing that happens outside of us. Like, basically not... This hostile mind, what Paul's saying is that it's not that we are passively caught up in some sort of cosmic situation beyond our control. Does that make sense? So we can say, like, we're separated from God, but that's like some crazy thing out there going on that I have no control over. But Paul's saying, no, it's res- it's, it has residence in your mind as well. It's here. It's a reality for you. Now, it is true that this is a, a cosmic, if you will, situation, but our attitudes, our thinking, are a part of this. And he's saying they're hostile, hostile to Christ, obviously, therefore, to God. And so, Paul, though, it's interesting if you look back at verse 9. Look at, read verse 9 with me. It says, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he tells us later that you were hostile in mind. Do you think, Paul, as he's riding through and he gets to verse 9, do you think he has in mind when he says, be filled with the knowledge of the will of all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Do you think he's thinking that just a few moments ago that you were hostile in mind towards God? And so instead of being hostile in mind towards God, because you've now been reconciled, be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what Paul, so Paul, as he, I mean, these are not just disconnected ideas. Like this is Paul's thinking and then he reminds us, after he tells us to be filled with his knowledge, and later he says, this is what you were. You were hostile in mind. This is why I told you to be filled with that. So what happens is, 
the way this tends to look like. We're separated from God, seeking satisfaction elsewhere. And then what happens as we're not finding that satisfaction, not finding that fulfillment, that joy, a purpose, become hostile. Our minds become hostile. Hostile of mind is the attitude of those who have refused to accept their true place as creatures, depending on God and owing him thanks for everything. We become hostile in mind, or we were hostile in mind. Basically, what happens is someone has to be blamed for our lack of satisfaction, for our lack of hope, fulfillment, peace, and joy. Because we can't find, we're not finding it in God. So we were hostile in mind, at least in part, because of our lack of satisfaction, because we preferred the creation to the creature. And this is what Paul's saying. This is what you were. Church in Colossae, this is what you were. And the same thing, if he was standing here today, he'd say, Renovation Church, this is what you were. You were alienated and therefore hostile in mind. So, once again, we're going to talk about a couple implications for us. Even though we are wrapped up in his grip that cannot be let go, we can still have that practical alienation and therefore have hostile minds. And we have to be careful of I'm not saying we're losing our salvation, but I'm saying we, we still struggle with these things. So the implication number one is don't blame others for your lack of fulfillment, lack of satisfaction. You could substitute a number of words there. Lack of fulfillment, and maybe even more specifically, you could add on the end of that lack of fulfillment in God, lack of fulfillment in Christ. So what happens for us Christians, those who are following Christ, that we become to try to find satisfaction in other places? And what happens is we don't find the satisfaction, right? So you're trying to find satisfaction in your work and your kids. <laughs> uh, you know, it was Sarah and I were talking about chaps doing this thing like mama, 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 and just relentlessly, like what well, he was doing just a few minutes ago, so good example. Like he's just doing this relentlessly. And she's like, that was such a blessing to my heart for a day. <laughs> and then, it's not fun anymore. There's fulfillment in that, perceived fulfillment in that, that then turned, I don't want to say destruction, but you get the point. Like it turned not fun anymore. So what happens is in our lives, we try to find fulfillment in different parts of our lives. And then when we stop finding that fulfillment satisfaction, then we have to blame someone. Because none of us want to fess up to the fact that we're trying to find satisfaction in something other than God. So what happens then is we become hostile. What's that hostility look like? Sometimes we become hostile towards our spouse and their relationship with God. Hostile towards authority. I mean, hostile, maybe even hostility towards God. Hostility towards God. What's this practically look like? I think sometimes it can, like let's say hostile in mind, and sometimes this can manifest itself in discouragement towards your spouse. Discouragement towards them, particularly in their relationship with God. I mean, we're just... 
just kind of trying to give you a feel for this. I mean, it can look many different ways, and that's where you need to take and, and go, am I hostile in mind? Am I trying to find fulfillment outside of God as if I'm alienated? And am I being hostile towards those around me or those who are trying to maybe even point me back to satisfaction in Christ? Am I being hostile towards them? Because a lot of times, and now this is speaking as a pastor, when you see someone trying to find satisfaction somewhere else and you try and move them back, then you end up receiving the hostility of mind, okay? That's not fun, but you have to. I have no choice. It's like seeing that person sitting on a railroad track with a train coming. Like, I can't just sit there. Move us back. And so, hostility, who are you being hostile towards? If, and here's the deal. You may not be struggling with this right now, but by golly, tomorrow... <laughs> When you struggle with this, remember these words. Remember Paul's words that this is what we were. And remember that the implication is that we have a temptation to do the same, to do the same thing. So, second implication. Learn to see those unconverted as hostile in mind towards God. Surprise, surprise. We tend to think that most unconverted are not necessarily, or unconverted people, are not necessarily hostile towards God. Like, we tend to see them as apathetic, right? Like, they just don't really care about God. They simply don't give a rip. But apparently, according to God's word, that that ap- apparently, according to God's word, that apathy is only a cover for their deep antagonism towards God. I mean, guys, God's word for those who are not, have not been reconciled or not his followers, the Bible calls them enemies of God. If you're going to be an enemy, that requires some hostility, right? Hostile towards God. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not true. Just because they look comfortable doesn't mean it's true. And I'm not saying, well, well I, yeah, I'm sure there just is no satisfaction. No, they're separated from God. And I think sometimes maybe it's hard for us to see that is because we struggle to find satisfaction in God because we're still trying to focus everywhere else. And so when we see them, we haven't really experienced that much joy because we're trying to find it elsewhere, so we don't experience that much joy. So when we see it at the lost world, well, they're not much different than me. And so why do I need to tell them about the Savior? Because this is really changing for me. When we experience this joy, like this should lead us then to tell them about it and lead us to and what we've been rescued from. And I think that's why Paul spent so much time saying, this is what you were, this is what you are now. Now go tell. Like, talk about it. Let it shine. Learn to see those around, those unconverted as hostile minds toward God. Romans 1, 21 through 23 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. It is this futile thinking and darkness of heart that does not honor God as God. And our world is hostile towards God. You don't have to, like, you don't have to turn to the news to see this. What I'm trying to get you to see is that it's not just that group of people out there that is hostile towards God. It's your coworker that's hostile in mind. Just because they're not a professed atheist who 
is out writing blogs against us Christians. Just because they're not that doesn't mean they don't fit this category. Because Paul says they all fit this category. You all, Colossians, were this. Learn to see those around us as hostile in mind. Moving forward. Our alienation and our hostile minds resulted in our evil deeds. Colossians one twenty one, Paul says, And you, Colossians, who once were alienated and hostile in minds, doing evil deeds. Wow, it's been like 35 minutes and we've gotten like through 10 words. All right, we'll keep going. Our alienation and hostility of mind was expressed in doing evil deeds. Once again, Paul is contrasting. So if you look at verse 10, Colossians 1 verse 10, says, so as to walk, this is after being filled with the knowledge of God, he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. That word work there in the Greek is the same as the word deeds in verse 21. I wish the translators would just leave it like deeds or whatever. But it would help us much better in this position. Because Paul is saying to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So again, follow follow back with me. He he says to, to grow in the knowledge of God. And then... To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then later he says that your minds are full of hostility. And he says back here, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Your minds are full of hostility. Then he says, doing evil deeds. And back here he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To, instead of doing evil deeds, do good deeds. Good works. Walk in a way that glorifies God. So the alienation and hostility of mind was naturally expressed in behavior, and it always is. So you can come at that from both sides of the the evil deeds. From this side, alienation from God, hostility in mind equals evil deeds. And if you're coming at it from this side, you're going, where did the evil deeds come from? Well, they came from a hostility of mind that came from an alienation from God. Does that make sense? I, I know... You see the importance because for those of us who are on this side where we've been reconciled to God, we have to see those who do evil deeds. I look like a sorcerer. Ah. Those who do evil deeds as it's coming from somewhere. Like these actions are not just frivolous things that come out of nowhere. They come from something. They come from a hostile mind that is alienated from God. And then for us, our evil deeds even currently come from some sort of alienation from God, not complete alienation that results in a hostile mind, that results in evil deeds. So Paul, though, is saying this is what we were. I want to keep that in front of us, that Paul, the main point of the text is Paul saying, this is what you were. You were were doing evil deeds, and now it's different, but... This is where I said we'll get to this a little bit more. We have a hard time. Some of us, like, that were saved at a very young age. And I don't want to repeat the same thing I said earlier. But, like, it's hard to remember, you know, what did I do 
at age three and a half, you know, that was evil. And so we start kind of trying to search for that. And, and then, like I said before, we try to place guilt on, you know, stealing the cookie from the cookie jar, right? Like, I don't think Paul's intent in painting this picture is for us to grab a hold, even those of us who did not get saved at a young age and got saved maybe in our 20s or 30s. I don't, Paul's intention here is not for us to grab a hold of some major sin in our life and then to get guilt over it and shame over it. Like, that's not Paul. Paul's not trying to say, feel bad for what you were. No, he's saying, look at what you were and then feel joyous because of who you are now. So let this serve only as a backdrop from which to see the glory of Christ just completely crowd out the picture of your past. Paul's point is the life apart from Christ. This is what it looks like. This is what you guys were. And so I think Paul's point here is saying to us is can you see what life apart from Christ looks like. And then for us, the implication is don't slip back. Keep moving forward. And the other implication is those who are not followers of Christ, see them as they really are. See them for who they are and what they need. So, evil deeds. Implication number one, our temporary alienation and hostile mind can lead us to evil deeds. If we're not careful, as we find, as we find temporary satisfaction in creation versus the creator, our minds in this lack of satisfaction become hostile towards the gospel, towards those around us, and then result in evil acts. Once again, this is why behavioral management doesn't work. No joke. I cut my grass like a week ago. Like it was the next day that the dandelions were, you know, like literally. I'm not joking. Like, I'm like, did I not, did I just push them over? Like, and then they just kind of, whoop, you know, like I thought I cut them, you know, and maybe I did just push some of them over. Maybe my blades need sharpened. I don't know. But the fact is the weeds grow a lot quicker. So I'm trying to plant grass in my various bare spots around the yard from different projects. And, and so I'm hoping that the grass just kind of comes up, you know, and we will try and nurture it too. But the fact is that you cut the grass and the weeds come back stronger. And we wonder why. Because the root is still there. Right? The root from the dandelion is still physically in the ground. And so when we just try to modify our behavior, all we're doing is giving it a haircut, right? We're just, we're just trimming it a little bit for it to grow back tomorrow. Where does the evil deed come from? The behavior come from? It comes from a hostile mind. So we're trying to find satisfaction elsewhere. I mean, is that sin in our life? We're doing it for a reason. We're not just doing it just because. We do that sin because we're trying to find something in, in creation that we weren't ever intended to find it there. Whether that be uh, lustful thoughts or that be uh, bucking authority or whatever that might be. Our, we're trying to find satisfaction our way instead of God's way. And so what happens is the, the, the dandelion just comes back. 
And, and my neighbors hate me, I think, because of my dandelions, right? I, I am like the dandelion nursery for the whole neighborhood, right? So no joke, beside me, both sides, and across the road, all have very lush, green, all one kind of plant, green, right? And the, the yours look beautiful. And then I went through and cut my grass <laughs> the other day when, when they were all puffy, you know? And I'm just going, just chugging along, and you see these, like, white smoke just, whoo, just floating down the neighborhood. So, anyways, uh, I'm sure they dislike me, but oh well. Um, so, behavioral management, it's why it doesn't work for us. Implication number two, learn to see the world's evil deeds as a result of their alienation and a hostile mind. Our tendency in society, here's the deal, our tendency in society, the people that we work with, the people that we go to school with, is to attack the evil deeds. Now, I want to say this within balance here, because uh, I think there is a balance, but our tendency is to go at it like we're cutting grass. And so what happens is we attack their behavior, and then what happens is in that, they often get turned off, upset, whatever, and they won't hear anymore. And we never get to the root of the problem. Now, I have to say this with imbalance because there is judgment and we have to stand up for what is right, for what is not. But here's the deal. Oftentimes I've found myself in situations with unbelievers where the last thing that I needed to point out to them was that what they did or said was wrong. But what I needed to do was tell them about Christ who's changed my life. You know, that's why I don't get on someone about cussing around me. I just, I just don't. I know some people would flip out about that. Someone says a cuss word in front of me. I don't. I want them to speak freely, right? Speak freely. And I want to hear their heart and then eventually something's going to come about because I'm, I'm looking, searching, praying for the opportunity to, to show Christ. And then you know what? As I'm talking about Christ, whether it's that day, that first time, or it's 20 times later, then I can talk about the judgment. And we can worry about correcting the, the behavioral stuff later. Because remember... Even if we go into that lost person and we tell them to stop doing that evil behavior, they still have a hostile mind and they're still alienated from God and you have done them no good. You've only made them a better person here and a better person by this world's standards, not by God's. You've done them no eternity, no good for eternity. So, I'm not saying there, there's not a checkbox list on this, guys. There's not a, okay, after they've done so many bad, then I can tell them about Jesus. And, and, and if it's this bad, then I can jump. I mean, obviously, if there's child molestation, things like that, I mean, obviously, you've got to step in. That, that's not what we're talking about here, okay? But most of us don't run into those things on a daily basis. We run into the, the cuss word or I'm, you know, doing this or, or whatever. And, and, and my point is, guys, the Holy Spirit can guide you through that, Okay? Ask him, what, what is it? I, that we, and just remember, the principle is they're alienated from God. That's where this stuff comes from. This evil deeds comes from here. So, see them 
their evil deeds as a result of their alienation and hostile mind. Now, the whole point, though, coming back to the meaning of the text, the direct meaning of the text, uh, the whole point of appreciating how lost we were is to realize the wander and being found. Okay, so let me say that one more time. The whole point of appreciating how lost we were is to realize the wander of being found. So Paul now moves from the past to the present. And we're going to fly through these last few points. Your present. What Christ has done. So, let your past intensify your understanding of the present. Now, it's just a general thing. I mean, Paul's not saying that explicitly. But what happens, though, is that basically this corresponds to the wants. If you look in verse 21, Paul says, um, all right, I'm totally lost my place. <laughs> verse 21, 22 begins with literally, okay. Verse 22 basically begins with, um, but now. I mean, that's really like in the Greek is the idea is it's but now. So once you were this, but now you are this. So what happened in Christ means that there is a dramatic contrast between what you once were and what you are now. So obviously it's important for Paul to show us these two pictures. This is what you were, and that means something. And this is what you are now. He says, but now. Or he has now reconciled, verse 22, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. So we are now reconciled to God. We're now reconciled to God. So let the past just aid in your understanding of the but now. And the but now is that we are reconciled to God. And what has happened is so beautiful. It's, I, Paul just awesome with his words says, this is all captured. What has happened now is all captured in one word, and that word is reconciled. Again, because what is the core? It's not the evil deeds, it's not the hostile mind, it's the alienation from God. So what is the core then, and what's now present? is that your alienation has been reconciled. You are no longer estranged to God. Paul also picks up the word used in verse 20, it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So God, through Christ, has acted to put the universe back together. To overcome the alienation, to bring peace where there is hostility, and good where evil had taken hold. And this, is, this is what God does in Christ. And for you, for you the Colossians, the past is the past. Let it go. What matters now is that you're no longer alienated, but reconciled. Reconciled to God. We're no longer slaves to our sin because at our very core, we are now able to find satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ. So at our very core, that's why we're no longer... That's the, Behavior modification, all that. that's why none of that works. Is because at the very core, nothing's changed. 
Now we get God. We are enabled to have God. We get God when our very core changes. The natural man can't get God. Can't have God. Their satisfaction is, their fulfillment is impossible to find. So, the question is, how, how did he reconcile us? It says, in his body of flesh, through his death, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Verse 122. So follow the parallels. Once we were this, and now we're this. Then we're alienated, and now we're reconciled. The next parallel is the once alienated life was lived in evil works. Our now reconciled life is in the body of flesh by his death. Now you see where then this picture is to is where Paul's talking about living out this life that, that Christ is called in Philippians 2 about how God is working this through us. That it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's, that means this is the language here. So it's, it's no longer this separation and alienation from God, but I've been reconciled to God in order to live this life out in his flesh and in Christ, live it out in Christ. Christ lives in me. That's the picture. And this is what Paul's painting for the Colossians. And so now we understand that the sacrifice that put the universe back together has also been for us. That he reconciled us. And I think what Paul's saying here to the Colossians and to us is that this is the personal consequence of this event. Is that now we are reconciled along with all of creation. Now take note before we move on. Take note that our reconciliation was accomplished in who? Or in what? Jesus' body of flesh by his death. So he accomplished this for us. I'm not saying that it wasn't ultimately for God. It was ultimately for God. But he accomplished this for us without our assistance or even our cooperation. It was his doing, not ours. Make sense? It's his doing. This reconciliation is his doing. Not had nothing to do with us. We had no part in it. Now we will see, though, next week what our part is in this big picture. And that's why I wanted to save verse 23 for its own sermon because there's some really awesome stuff that I hope to lead us through next week. But we must first realize that this reconciliation that took place, saving us from alienation to being reconciled to God, was not our doing. It was God's. But here's what's cool. Our reconciliation is not the end of the story. There's a purpose that has yet to be fully realized. Now I think, like, I mean, this stuff's all awesome and this is great, but I think Paul just takes it kind of one notch higher for us. So, so all of this has happened not just, be, like there's a future reason that you have yet to see or realize. And so now Paul points us to a future occasion 
when those who have been reconciled in the body of Christ's flesh are to be presented before him. Now, just like as we read this, just imagine the picture, okay? Just imagine what's going on. Verse 122b says, This is the purpose in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. <laughs> we will be a presentation of God's glorious work. We already are, in some senses, a presentation of God's glorious work. But on that day, it will be finished. and will be an ultimate presentation for the angels in heaven and the demons in hell to see God's glorious work. Amen? Yeah, amen. We're the presentation of whose work? God's work. God's work in us. The picture here is a future occasion of judgment. You know, the impending judgment that comes. When, when those of us who are followers of Christ, when we stand before that, it is, it is not, depart from me, I never knew you. It is, it is, this is the presentation of my work. God's work. The astonishing truth, I think, is this. That the death of Jesus on the cross had in view that day. That day of judgment. When Christ hung on the cross, he had in view the day that his people would be presented as holy, blameless, and above reproach. These evil people who had hostile minds and were enemies and alienated from God. I mean that, from the depths of our sin to the heights of his holiness, that transition is Paul's picture here and what will be presented on that day. Next, we will be holy, blameless, and above reproach. We'll be holy, blameless, and above reproach. Colossians one twenty two. In order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. What will happen on that day is you will be presented before him holy, blameless, above reproach. Like again, holy, blameless, above reproach. I think the key word here is above reproach. Above reproach basically means far from accusation. Like we'll be presented before him far from any accusation. Basically innocent. And in another word, justified. Christ's death was the death of the holy and blameless one who was above reproach. So because of his death, we who were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds are now reconciled so that we will be presented before him holy, blameless, and above reproach. Think about this with me. We were alienated from God, separated, seeking satisfaction in anything but God. Because of this, we become hostile in mind. We're not just apathetic. Our minds were set against God. With our hearts and minds set against God, we did evil deeds. Every deed we did apart from the glory of God is a deed performed for our glory and therefore evil. And Paul is telling the Colossians that this is telling us, and, and Paul is telling us the same thing today, that he wants us to understand the full significance of what we believe. Let the past serve to show the significance of what is now and what is to come. We are now reconciled. 
The life we once lived is in the flesh, and that life is now lived in Christ. And God has begun the work of restoring you and me to the image of Christ. And that he will finish some day. What I want to do is, I want to, I want to pray. And, and I, I really, um, like if, if I can just encourage you guys to do anything. As we sing, particularly as we sing this next song, and as fitting as it is for this moment, always, man, just let the Holy Spirit, as you sing, let the Holy Spirit guide your mind and your thoughts. Let, like, ask Him, reflect on these truths of what we were and what He's done now. Like, think about that in the light of the words we sing. Like, when we sing and we worship God, like, it's not just, I'm just offering up some words, but it's an opportunity to praise Him for the, maybe the new truth or the truth that you now more fully understand today. So let me encourage you to do that as, as we sing. So let's pray, and then the band will come up, and, and we'll sing. Father, um, I know it's sometimes hard for us to work through what we once were. and For some of us, that is a dreadful reminder of a very wicked past. For some of us, it's a... It's a reminder of the things that we did in life that we wish we could maybe forget. But Father, for some of us, it's, a, it's, it's an enlightenment to our unfortunate high view of what we once were. For some of us, it's, it's, it's telling us that the way we thought we used to be is, is not true. But the way we used to be was dreadful, sinful. And Father, the goal in Paul's writing here is not to, not to take us from uh, to, to feeling bad about ourselves, but it's to take us to, to show us the height of of your gloriousness, of your grace, of your work in Christ and leading us to the cross and changing and reconciling us. It's, it's to see that for what it is. So Father, as we worship you, as, as we sing these truths about you as the, as the saving one, that we would see it for what it is in our better understanding today because of how you've enlightened us through Paul's writings in Colossians chapter 1. Now, Father, I give you the praise for these next few moments. Let's pray that the hearts of your saints would be a sweet aroma to your nose, that it would, it would fill your ears with gladness. And Father, we thank you so much. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.